From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Be not afraid to argue with people while you're holding in your head any of your strong ideas may be wrong and that should not be emotionally attached to any of those previous ideas, that it's not a hit on you personally. For me, I will argue like hell about something I believe in, but if I kind of see data that's new that I didn't think about that proves what I said was wrong, I'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's wrong. Let's go do a different direction. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Ariel Kelman, CMO at Oracle. Over the course of his career, Ariel has spent time at some of the most prominent companies in tech, including Salesforce, Amazon, and Oracle. In the process, he's played a seminal role in defining the modern playbook that B2B marketers use in tech. But Ariel's career has hit a few speed bumps along the way. In the early 2000s, Ventasso, a company that he co-founded and built up to over 150 employees, finally flamed out after six rounds of layoffs. To Ariel's credit, he picked himself up and got back into the game, parlaying the things that he learned into an instrumental role at Salesforce. On today's show, we'll get Ariel's perspective on what it takes to come back from crushing defeat, why the cloud computing industry is still in the early innings, and what he's learned from three of the greatest CEOs of all time in tech, Mark Benioff, Jeff Bezos, and Larry Ellison. Let's jump into the conversation. Ariel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really happy to be here. I'm really excited to get into your background and chat a little bit about your rich experience. You've worked at some great companies, Salesforce, Amazon, Oracle, before we go there, though, I think we need to really set the baseline with some some fundamental experiences that you had in life. And of course, that always starts in high school. I want to go back. You were growing up in Los Angeles, actually Beverly Hills. And I'm not embarrassed to maybe a little embarrassed to admit that 90210 was a show that may have appeared on my television screen from time to time. You actually went to the high school that 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 show was based on. Can you tell? Yeah, us it, about it that? was a, it was a little weird to have a uh, a TV show supposedly on a high school, even though they were called West Beverly. We were on the western edge of Beverly Hills, so uh, as the only high school there, so it was a little bit of a fictitious school. But um, you know, no Dylan McKay uh, in my uh, in my class. I was just going to say, is it safe to say you were the Jason Priestley of the of the real nine hundred two one zero? No, there were people with much longer sideburns than me. Then. <laughs> All right. So so some really interesting experiences. And uh, with that as a starting point, you went on to have a great career. Your career, though, was almost ended before it started. You had a very harrowing experience when you were in college. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that one? Oh, yeah. This this was my, my first experience uh, with uh, the media, with uh, getting into an article. I was in college. And, uh, uh, this was actually at Berkeley uh, during the Rodney King riots. We were all sort of uh, quarantined in our uh, dorms. So, of course, we decided to go down to see what was going on outside, not following the rules. Um, and uh, in 
in the elevator, my buddy leaned up against the door uh, of the elevator, which caught itself on a ledge, flew up in the air, oil uh, spraying out everywhere. We were stuck in the elevator for about two hours. And then, of course, the Daily California uh, newspaper decides to interview us. And I see in the paper the next day, it says uh, three students trapped in elevator, foul play, not ruled out. So that may I, I can't confirm that's the start of clickbait uh, digital marketing headlines and articles not being factual, uh, but um, it was a uh, definitely a foreshadowing of of the world I would enter in the future. That is that is a provocative headline. Was was foul play ever ruled in? Uh, it, it was not, but but yes, by by logic, it cannot be ruled out. It was not investigated. The police, I think, had more important things to work on. All right. So as far as we know, no one was out to get you. There were no hits on you. Nope, and, no one was uh, injured. All good. From there, you went sailing through. All right. So you uh, you went to Cal um, and shortly upon graduating from Cal, did a little bit of consulting, but then you dove right into it and started your own venture at Ventasso. Tell us a little bit about what you guys did and where the inspiration for that business came from. Yeah. So, I mean, before we started, I was working at MicroStrategy um, as a sales engineer. So spending most of my time working with companies to really building prototypes of data warehouses to do uh, BI demos um, for analytics. And um, a lot of what we were doing as sales engineers was supporting salespeople to deliver effective pitches. And we would help them customize their presentations, their proposals, you know, to put in the right differentiators against the competitor we were going up against to customize it for an industry with the right content. You know, we're sort of this like sales rep, sales engineer teams. And we would spend a lot of time on, on essentially what you kind of call the marketing content the reps were using. And so, you know, being database people, we said, well, why couldn't we have put all this content that we're producing in a database and then have a system automatically feed it out. Because if there's different ways that we're going to talk about our product for each industry, there's customer success quotes, there's let's say like 50 features of a product, but only some of them are interesting depending on what the customer's business requirements are. So we kind of created this logical structure for marketing content, really for the marketing content that salespeople needed to sell. And so then we quit our jobs and started this uh, company. And the idea was to have a, a content management system where marketing could put the content in about their products, how they solve business requirements, the customer references. And then salespeople would simply replicate the conversation they'd have with someone helping them. Here's who I'm selling to. Here's what their needs are. Here's who I'm competing against. And then our system would automatically generate all the sales tools. It automatically build a presentation with the right products, the right features, the right the customer references from the same industry as the customer use the same product, uh, proposals, all these tools. So it was, it was a pretty compelling idea. And paint a picture for this was in 2000. We started the company in 1998. 1998. So paint a picture for us of what life in the startup was like and just the general landscape at that period of time. I mean, back then, like, you know, me, I started with two other people, you know, we're in San Francisco, we're like working first half of the day doing uh, consulting work, like Im implementing my, uh, Informatica for people, just trying to make money to, to fund what we're doing, get a couple developers, um, and then, you know, working late at night, 
Um, but at the same time, it's like so much of that was going on in San Francisco at the time and running around doing VC pitches where, you know, really had to work hard to get these meetings. Um, and what we were pitching, there were no customers. We needed the money to build the product to get the customers. That, that kind of dynamic doesn't exist as much anymore. It was the biggest, you know, a lot of stress getting these meetings and then putting the great PowerPoint presentation. And we had this prototype we'd shop around um, that would show a Microsoft Office document popping up with all this custom content flying in. A lot of good eye candy there. Yeah. Eye candy used to be, I think, a big part of VC pitches. Maybe well, you did it. You didn't have the infrastructure to launch a product, get customers using it. So really, all you had initially was a PowerPoint presentation and people would invest on that. Yeah. So how did it go? You launched this venture. It's a great idea. Was it up and to the right? It's a great idea. We, um, I mean, we were fortunate with the funding. We raised $65 million. We grew the company up to 120, I think 125 people uh, in, by the spring of 2000, signed a couple big customers, uh, EDS, FedEx. I think we had a contract with IBM, Lucent. Um, but I mean, ultimately, it ended up being a massive failure. Uh, and kind of the problem was that we were automating a business process that didn't exist. And so we were teaching people, hey, here's a better way to create marketing content for your salespeople. And by the way, we have the software to automate it too. Now, in that approach, it kind of works well. It, it works at first if your if our team would do the implementation for them. And the product marketing people were always skeptical, They're like, what? You want to change? You want me to write content in small chunks of words instead of documents? That sounds crazy. We're like, don't worry about it. We'll take all your materials, we'll shove it in our system, and then the salespeople would love it. But the minute we left, we couldn't get the humans to adopt the new technology. And then it just died. And so it's kind of like, you know, I sort of say, like, you know, imagine if you, you know, sold Oracle Financials, PeopleSoft Financials, whatever, to a, a finance team that didn't really buy into cost accounting you know, that thought they should just store everything in notepads, you know, th they're not going to appreciate the software. So, you know, I think, you know, it's, it was sort of a lesson for me. I always think about is like the startup, I'm always kind of skeptical of the startup ideas where they involve getting humans to change their behavior in a massive way and then automating that new way of working. What's fascinating about that problem you were trying to solve, and this is something that many startups face you got great feedback from the salespeople. They loved it. The problem was they weren't the ones doing the work right. to bring it online. Yeah, I mean, we we would literally go and we didn't we do an implementation, shove all their content in, and then we'd go to a sales kickoff with like a thousand salespeople, show them simple interview, and then these proposals and PowerPoints getting dynamically built with content flying in, and we'd get standing ovations. But you know, they didn't have to do any work. It's the other people. I think another sort of startup lesson is to look at, well, who is the burden, you know, who faces the burden of sort of the hard, not fun work and who gets the value in a company and understanding that political dynamics. It, it, it's important dynamic. I think people often forget if they talk about sell, you know, selling to a company, how do you show value to your customer? And if, and I think a lot of people don't pay enough attention to this, the internal political dynamics in the company between the different roles of people. Yeah, if you think about it, you were essentially just transferring work. You were transferring it from the salespeople who were initially assembling the presentations over to the product marketing team. 
And uh, as, yeah, we as got, a result, we got super like religious about it. We'd be like, who cares? Like they're going to come on board. They don't realize they're just yeah. throwing their data in a sales portal and no one's using, no one's using their content. No one's yeah. using their content. And, and it was kind of arrogant. So emotionally, how did that feel? The bill, I mean, 160 people, that's a lot of people, 60 million raised. How did it feel when that thing went down in flames? Well, I mean, it was it was difficult, but I mean, I think as anyone who's dealt with a startup that is ultimately shut down, it doesn't go on usually go down in flames immediately. You know, it's a bunch of it's death by a thousand medium cuts, probably. <laughs> The dot com initial dot com bust was more consumer companies, but in the B two B world, it's sort of the investors were like, I don't know about giving you guys more money. You know, we basically kind of went through round after round of layoffs, trying to get by without raising more money. You know, we had a systemic problem that the con- the people who needed to put the content in didn't see value in the product, and we couldn't figure out how to fix that. This is the classic founder dilemma. If if you're not the kind of person that refuses to acknowledge the barriers and the boundaries, you, you're not going to be a founder. At the same time, how do you know when to pull the ripcord? Well, yeah, I mean, this is something uh, at Amazon, they talk a lot. People talk a lot about having a very long term view. Like J- Jeff Bezos said, we need to be very comfortable being misunderstood for long periods of time. So, you know, the, in, in the, the founder kind of mentality there's this idea that you need to stick to your guns, you know, stick to your, your firm beliefs, not, you know, waver to mediocrity just to appease, you know, some of your initial customers. But then again, like that's a recipe for failure in some cases where like, I think for my startup, we should have found a way to pivot it uh, to use that, you know, word overused word to make the product deliver wonder and excitement and an amazing experience to the marketing people, not just the salespeople. Um, But we were kind of unflexible and we didn't go and change that. We just thought about ways to make it easier to put the content in. That was a mistake. That's a really important nuance to bring out. Pivoting is not giving up. And so many startups have to pivot one, two, three, multiple times before they find that recipe. So this early experience that you have at Vintasso, Yep. In the short term is very painful, but really lays for you a foundation of success in your career and tremendous learning experiences come out of it. You fortunately then move on to a a somewhat successful company, we'll call it Salesforce. How'd you find out about the gig and what were you hired to do? Yeah, I mean, I took some time off after we shut down uh, our startup and, um, you know, I was looking around for jobs. I, I had a friend who was working at Salesforce who told me about this job. And it was, I think it was called director of sales effectiveness. And they wanted someone to help work on um, how to improve uh, their ability to sell to IT people because the company was great at selling to salespeople. Um, but increasingly as they you know became more and more interested in selling to larger enterprises, you know, there were more IT people to sell to and they needed to work on sales tools and messaging and things like that. That was the initial job, which I found to be really interesting since I just spent six years on a startup that was really living in this, you know, sales, marketing, content relationship. So I thought it would be a good place to work. Today, we think about Salesforce as the juggernaut that it is, owns the enterprise space. That wasn't always the case. We actually talked to Jim Steele not too long ago. I understand you guys work together. Yeah. 
But you guys had to come in and figure that whole playbook out for how you crack the enterprise. Yeah, I mean, look, there were a lot of people there with a lot of enterprise experience. I mean, especially Mark, but the company start you know started off as an SMB product, and there is a good argument to be made that that's a better way to go because it forces you to have really make the user experience great because it's just harder to force employees to use a bad UI in a small company because they're often the, the you know the owner the buyers are the users anyways but um yeah so a lot of the work during the time I was there you know the engineering teams were busy building all these enterprise features and then sales and marketing we were working on selling to more enterprises and I think actually talking to and selling to the IT people and looking at that as a good thing versus a problem you know that was common not just salesforce but the early kind of saas companies right started off just selling the business and it people you know if you go you're in uh 2000 you know the mid 2000s a lot of the it people were skeptical of the of saas on demand cloud whatever we called it back then because you know there's security concerns how do i integrate with my on premise system so it was sort of thought of as objection handling and we're like you know let's turn this around because we went we went through and said okay well what are all the ways that a, a sales rep would interact with uh, our products? And we said, well, you know, they need to customize, they need to integrate, they need to do all the things they need to do. I'm like, well, we have a great answer for all these things. And you know what? It's better than, uh, you know, some of the systems they'd used before. And so we came up with an IT pitch that we liked and, um, you know, went around um, working with the salespeople uh, to train them up on selling to IT. Jim Steele tells the story about going in and meeting with the CIO of Cisco and addressing the objections that that he had. What fascinated me about that story, I mean, ultimately, it came down to scalability, configurability, performance, yeah. uh, usability, adoption. But what fascinated me about that story, two things. Number one, the things that he was talking about, while they seemed revolutionary at the time, today are just table stakes. Yeah. But secondly, Jim literally rattled off a list of six things without even thinking. And I could tell that that was so ingrained in the way that he ran those sales motions. And to me, it was a testament to the fact that you got to figure out what the motion is, and then you have to institutionalize it so that it rolls off your tongue like that. Yeah, absolutely. So you've worked with iconic CEOs in your career. You mentioned Mark. Uh, we'll talk about Jeff Bezos in a minute. And then obviously, Larry, where you're at now at Oracle. Let's start though with Mark. What did you learn working with Mark? A lot of what I learn and believe about product marketing, uh, I, I feel like I learned from Mark. I mean, he my, my perception is that he thinks a lot of the, the framing or the lens that he looks things through is as a product marketer. And so thinking about, you know, what needs are out there in the market? What conversations? What are people not happy about? What do people like? And how to basically work with engineering teams to come up with products that are really compelling and that, that drive emotional kind of energy of excitement of, you know, either getting rid of the stuff that you hate or giving people something that they've only aspired to that thought was impossible before. And then, you know, trying to distill this down into relatively simple information or kind of new terms to create that you could own that captured your differentiation. And above all, differentiation. I mean, he's just pushed that as just a good litmus test for do you have good messaging? You know, if you could replace your company with one of your competitors and have the messaging make sense, it's not good. 
Well, what's the story behind the no software logo that Salesforce used early on? Yeah, I mean the the the, I, the idea is is um, he wanted something, and this is before I was there, but he wanted something uh, that would differentiate Salesforce's approach. And even though it kind of goes against you know whatever you would learn in marketing school of like don't offend the people you're selling to because uh, they buy software and you're selling software, but it was so clearly something that would grab people's attention just very clearly highlight what was different about their products and that you couldn't imagine anyone else doing that. And so it was very unconventional, but it, it draw, drew attention. Um, I mean, it's actually funny. I, uh, after uh, I, uh, a funny experience where I'd say about six months into Salesforce, I um, talked to a few CIOs and they said, hey, I think you should get rid of this no software logo because it's offending the IT people. And so I sent Mark an email. I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? The guys around me are like, dude, you're gonna get fired. I'm like, nah, that's fine. So I just, the response back was no with five explanation points, aloha mark, which is sort of the friendly way he always ends it. I'm like, okay, I got to look. All you want sometimes is a clear answer. I'm like, that's good. Can't hurt to ask. Mark has never been criticized for not being clear. Yep. D- to your point though, that was controversial in that not only, not only did it offend IT, but you think about associating your brand with a big red no sign you know the negativity the the color red the the image and yet the brilliance of it was in one simple graphic or icon it summarized the complete value proposition of the early venture yeah cuz you you'd combine that with well what, what do you mean by that and he'd say well why can't business software be as simple as buying a book on amazon and so it was right. sort of like and everyone was frustrated with at that time you know if you look at the, the software, the business software from the early 2000s and the 90s, massive customization that required a lot of professional services. And you were kind of locked into these versions that uh, there was no upgrade. You had to re-implement. There was a lot of pain there. It was an absolute nightmare. The, the re-implementation, bringing consultants in literally loading code onto machines. We, yeah. we take all that for granted now, but that was the reality most Yeah, cases. I mean, and, and it's mostly gone, except for SAP. I mean, it's still there. You still have to, you know, you got the majority of these large SAP shops still using the software they implemented for Y2K and they're stuck there because you can't upgrade it. Yeah. But most of the SaaS applications, you know, they've gone to this metadata customization layer, yep. so configuration. You upgrade it, it keeps your configurations and you move on. So we talked a little bit about Mark Tell us about Jeff and what you've learned from Jeff and the way he runs his business. Yeah, I mean, I didn't spend too much time uh, directly with with Jeff, but it was always very, um, you know, it was very interesting when we got to spend time with him. And I think a couple of the big takeaways is um, I think the the concept of mechanisms as a management tool, because we always have things where, you know, we aren't happy with something that's happening in our company, whether it's bad product quality, we don't like you know, the way the salespeople behaved in this case, we don't like the messaging, we don't like the look of something, we don't like a bug that caused our website to crash. And we tell people like, hey, be more careful, don't do this again. And, and, and so Jeff has this whole thing on not relying on good intentions, because it doesn't work because people already have them. And instead relying on mechanisms, and these are sort of things that happen, things that go on and catch your problems, regardless of people wanting to actively catch the problems. And the sort of example that they always give is the, uh, you know, the Andon cord, uh, which 
originally it was a Japanese manufacturing uh, approach of letting any factory worker uh, stop the production line from their station by pulling a cord. And then if they saw a quality defect. And so the Amazon version of this is any customer, and I think they still do this today, any customer service, all the customer service reps are told, if you're getting too many, if you feel you're getting too many calls on a product from customers that's low quality, that those people, those individual contributors can remove the buy button from the uh, the products. And so you don't have to tell the product category people to, you know, hey, you really need to make sure you're not putting low quality products out there. No, 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 no. You create a mechanism where the people who have to deal with the pain of it, they can cause so much pain back to the category people that those category people, not only do they get notified, but they're going to think in the future, I better not screw this up. Because if I don't have a buy button, you know, obviously you can't sell anything. So those kind of mechanisms. So I always encourage people to think about like, how, you know, how do we fix this problem in a, in a you know, systematic way where we're not just relying on people to always be careful or always, you know, be thoughtful or detail oriented because it doesn't scale. That's a radical idea. It puts the power in the hands of the, pe- of the folks on the front line. It takes a lot of trust. But to your point, gets the results ultimately that you're after. And I love that idea of building the mechanism into the process so that it just happens automatically. Let's talk a little bit about Larry. Tell us a little bit about Larry and what, what you've learned. You've been at Oracle for a year now. What you've learned from him. Yeah, no, it's been a year. I think actually today um, is, is one year, or at least since what LinkedIn says. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to, um, to spend some time with Larry um, and uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's just the, the amazing, the, the energy he has. I think this is one of these qualities of very highly successful leaders is I'm, I'm always amazed that the, there is an endless energy to engage at a deep level on a massive amount of, of things, you know, in these big companies. The, those leaders are, are, you know, it's a quality I see a lot and it's successful in that. So I've, I've enjoyed a lot of work with Larry, very creative. He looks at things in, in different ways and, um, but also, I, I always enjoy working with people that have very strong opinions and are not afraid of sharing them aggressively, but then at the same time are not emotionally attached to those decisions and are totally open to changing them. Um, so he, you know, just to watch him really push uh, our product teams, you know, when they come to him, you know, in his role as CTO, he's real deep in all the engineering um, roadmap and, and um, product exercises and He's in many cases teaching, you know, junior product managers what the right way to design products is and pushing them to look at, well, have you thought about how that compares to this product from a competitor? Or is this really what a data analyst, pick your persona, is really going to want to do? They're going to click on that. Are you sure? And so um, it's just been great to watch the sort of product, you know, the engineering mindset. It's been a lot of fun. He's a very pragmatic person too. I, he's dialed into what does the customer need and how can we deliver on that? I remember when I was at Oracle, I was in product marketing for a time and I had to come up with a name for a handheld uh, product for CRM. And so I did all the research that you would expect in the focus groups and it was a month long project. And I came up with some outlandish name that was way too overly complicated and engineered. Yeah. Well, I had to send it up to Larry because he was yeah. reviewing all the names of the products and it came back. The product will be called 
the mobile CRM product. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that was it. Um, I, I, look, I, I when I started at Salesforce, I inter, uh, my boss there was Kendall Collins, and he interviewed me. He's like, "What parts of marketing do you like?" I said. I really like everything except for pricing and naming. I'd prefer not to work on those. And I've spent a, a way, I've spent a lot of time working on naming and debating names all now. But no, uh, Larry likes descriptive names. That's something we've debated at AWS all the time. There's even a blog post out there uh, on uh, how much people hate the naming that AW, naming approach AWS does. But let me get into that. But there's debates between abstract names uh and suggestive names and descriptive names the descriptive names obvious advantages you don't have to explain to people what the hell it is people if your name is similar to the google search that's an inherently good thing but then again you can look more generic so i always thought for for the pro the handful of products you really want to put marketing energy behind an abstract name is good but you got to realize you, you've just given yourself an order of magnitude more of a marketing challenge um, because no one knows what that thing is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about AWS now. When you arrived at AWS, was this idea of cloud computing a, a mainstream idea or was it still early days? Yeah, I mean, I, so I started AWS in 2011. Um, I mean, I think I think by that time, uh, I, if I go back, maybe 2007, 8, 9, 8, 9, 10 is when really people were talking about cloud computing. People were starting to talk about SaaS, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and kind of rolling all that up to cloud computing. But yeah, I know the company was well underway into that. When I interviewed there, the you know the 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 pitch was like, uh, "Hey, we're already been building up our enterprise sales team. You know, when you come here and help us build out um, enterprise, you know, build out our marketing team uh, and figure out the the thing I absolutely loved was the offer of like, "Hey, come here and figure out what marketing should be at AWS." And that was fun because I said, "Okay, well, I get to kind of take." what I've learned and also figured out with the people there. And so, you know, it was a pretty small team then, two dozen people. And we got to decide like, well, what should our web team look like? How do we want to use email marketing? And, uh, you know, it was a fun collaborative process to kind of, you know, grow it. So Amazon at the time is obviously a huge organization. You're a small organization in an emerging but high growth business. What was your strategy to establish the team and ultimately to generate the clout that you needed for you and your team to be successful? I mean, well, I sort of say the first, I may I go back a little bit that I talked to people about marketing jobs and like, what's a good marketing job in technology? I, I always go back to like, you got to have strong products. You got to have like, you if you're not going somewhere that has the best or close to the best products in this age where people can try out for free the product anywhere in the world, anytime they want. You, you can't put lipstick on a pig anymore and hide the product behind sales engineers and fake demos. Like that world's kind of over. And so I looked at it as the role of doing developer marketing, how I see it, which is it's about educating developers with information that they want. So how do you help them understand what your products can be used for, how to use them and making sure that you make it really easy to get all the technical enablement content 
that they need and then also make it easier for them to share ideas and information with each other. You know, anytime you're dealing with new technology, new, new ways to use, you know, to build applications and run applications, the people who have done it already want to want to talk to each other about, you know, are we doing it right? How can we use this new open source program or how we use this? And then the people who haven't used cloud before, they, they need advice. So connecting the customers together was a good idea. And then look, when you have a good product, there's something, uh, someone at, at, when I was at Salesforce said this, that uh, a good part of your PR strategy, if you have a good product, is you combine uh, cust- three things, customers, reporters, and alcohol. Because they'll just talk about it. There it is. That's yep. the secret. Yep. All right, I may use that one. You have to have good products. Your customers have to like your products and your company. Yeah. All right, so you've been on the inside at two of the global leaders in cloud computing between Oracle and, and AWS. Where are we in the evolution of that space? Is it still early days? And, and if so, what's what lies ahead? Yeah, so, I mean, I think we're at the point in time. I mean, it's obviously different by country, a little bit different by industry, but, you know, let's just take like US, Europe. We're at the point where there's the vast majority of, of IT organizations have decided that they want to go big on cloud, that they want to run, you know, uh, you know, the vast majority of their applications and systems in the cloud, you know, in the medium term. Um, and a lot of these organizations have moved a lot of workloads to the cloud, but yet it, it's still kind of early days. I don't know if it's maybe the second inning where you think about it, the average, you know, multi-billion dollar multi, you know, $500 million and greater enterprise, very few of them have moved more than 10% of their IT infrastructure uh, to the cloud. Higher adoption on the SaaS side, because that's kind of easier, but there's still a lot of on-premise and and it's not because they don't want to move to the cloud. It's the stuff takes time. People are busy and, you know, they got to be cautious. You, You break these systems when you move them, you get fired. You know, I think the days of debating, is it a better model? You know, can we trust it? It's sort of over. And, you know, there's always going to be some workloads that need to be in company-owned data centers, whether it's for regulatory reasons or, you know, for factories that just they they have systems where they need very low latency connections physically co-located. But, you know, these are minor corner cases. Uh, the vast majority of companies want to move the vast majority of their workloads to the cloud. So it's it's become... You know, the days of talking about why or if or over, it's it's about, you know, how to do it best and, you know, which vendors they should use in which places. And I think, you know, a big area of conversation now is like, you know, uh, how do we not make ourselves dependent on just one cloud provider? And so, you know, for the last couple of years, a lot of these companies have been talking about multi-cloud more as a philosophy. But, you know, now you're seeing people, you know, it, you can trick your board for a while to say I'm multi-cloud, but really just you do most of your stuff on one cloud, 90%. But now like they're having to really pay these off with real strategies of, you know, building out the tools and starting to make themselves uh, have a real multi-cloud strategy um, to manage risk and also give them more leverage to make sure they get, you know, good economics. So that's going to be a big, big area going forward. You called out two points that in my mind really stood out. I think too often we take for granted the fact that, or or we assume, yeah, we live in a SaaS world now, everybody's in the cloud. But to your point, there is massive infrastructure that's been laid down literally over decades 
costing trillions of dollars. And the process of moving all of that into the cloud is a multi-decade yeah. exercise in order to capitalize on. And then that idea of, of a multi-cloud strategy makes complete sense too, not, not putting all your eggs in one basket, basket. If these are the mission critical systems, it makes sense to use a portfolio strategy of multiple cloud vendors from a failover perspective. Yeah. Tell me about what Larry hired you to do. Larry hired me to, to um, really create the marketing organization that we feel the company needs, you know, for the next 10, 20 years. And, or look, the, uh, a lot of companies have different ways to organize marketing teams and there's no one right way. Um, and there's a lot of debate always between centralization, decentralization. Yeah, I have some companies who are like, well, you know, the salespeople want to own their field marketing teams. And other people are like, hell no, we'll never do that. So you debate this back and forth. Oracle gone very, um, very decentralized. And, you know, Larry, Larry's view was that marketing is just, just too important now to operate in that fashion um, in, in a lot of the aspects of marketing. So it was, hey, come in here and figure out how our marketing team should be structured, build some of the new team. And, you know, a lot of this is in the context of, this massive product shift that Oracle has been going through um, from, you know, from on-premises systems and software to SaaS applications, cloud infrastructure, cloud database services. Um, you know, the, and, and again, I sort of go back to like, you got to go where they have the product truth, where they have the good products. And so Oracle's gone through a massive effort to rebuild all of their enterprise applications to become SaaS applications, many of which are people used all the time. You know, that had already been done. And then on the cloud infrastructure side, really only past two years, the company had really built a completely new second generation cloud infrastructure platform and wanted to scale up that success and realize that, you know, you got to have the right communications and marketing and interaction with developers and IT people to help all the salespeople and help customers discover the product on its own. It's um, fairly standard. Uh, I mean, in some ways it's fairly standard. Hey, uh, we'd like to have a, a leader for this important function and come work with us on this journey and figure out what we need. Fairly standard, but at the same time, I would say that represents a pretty significant step forward from Oracle's perspective. Historically, it's really been a company which has been engineering product centric. And perhaps at one point, marketing might have even been an afterthought. And so I think that that emphasis that Oracle is now putting on marketing represents uh yeah. you know an evolution in the thinking and how prominent now marketing is in these big tech companies yeah i think that's fair yeah it's is viewed differently now in the company than it was you know five ten years ago for sure i think also that might relate to the buyer journey if you think about who's involved in the decisions particularly at a company like oracle where it transitioned from a hardcore it audience to an audience that enfranchised a much larger constituency, you need marketing to be able to understand that and to be able to speak to all of those different stakeholders in the yeah. terms that they understand. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, the um, the way people buy technology has changed massively in the last 20 years. And a lot of those changes it required you to be good at, at the function of marketing. You know, it's almost like you used to talk a lot about... Uh, um, you know, there were architecture boards, chief architects had a lot of power. Oh, we're going to pick, you know, we're going to pick this database or we're going to pick this customer support system. 
And, you know, it was the people in the suits selling to the people in the suits. And obviously nowadays, these individual contributors, developers, data analysts, different people on the app sides, they're making a very large portion of these decisions because especially with with technical products for developers, your buying cycle doesn't start with a lead. It starts with, you know, some engineer does a Google search because they they let's say if they want to go build a departmental data warehouse, they want to point Tableau at something to run queries of data because they don't want to rely on some other team. Okay, hey, we need a database for this and we want to run it in the cloud. They're going to start with a Google search. Now they're going to call your they they're a big company. They're going to call your reps eventually, but your reps don't earn the right to talk to the customer if you don't show up on that Google search and if they even if you do, if you don't have the right information, have a good experience, have a good trial, you know, all of that is that didn't exist 20 years ago with people buying software. And now it, it's absolutely critical to being successful. So that whole that whole aspect is just it's just different now. Right now you're running an organization of 1800 folks globally. I was actually having a conversation with Alicia Tillman, who's the CMO over at SAP. Similar question to her. How do you actually influence an organization that's that large? You're you're one person. How, how do you touch all those people? Well, I mean, the most important thing is to hire great people. Um, that's my number one scaling rule. Um, and uh, I think too often in these large jobs, one of the failure modes is to kind of get sucked into fixing all the problems at the expense of finding the killer leaders for the, yeah. the functions. Um, but anyways, the way I think about talking to people, I mean, you know, you do the regular communicating stuff, but I mean, again, to the sort of mechanism concept, one of the things I like to do is to distribute a set of marketing tenets. The two things, I have marketing tenets and I have uh, a top 50 goals. And so with the marketing tenets, I kind of wrote down what I think is good marketing and you know what's bad marketing. So for example, I have this thing called the plain language imperative. All of our messaging needs to be written in plain language and easy and understandable and devoid of corporate speak. If you read something out loud and it doesn't sound like something a human would say, that is shitty messaging and you need to rewrite it and it shouldn't be in any of our marketing materials. So you could, you kind of be like, I believe being super transparent and just very explicit about these things and you put it out there in writing and it's like, okay, people know what, what is real. And there's a whole bunch of other kind of tenets I have, but, and then on the goal side, uh, I'm always finding with marketing teams around the world, I'm always getting these requests. Hey, come speak to my you know marketing team in Korea or France. They, they're really eager to know um, what your top priorities are. And I think if people are asking that question, it's kind of a somewhat of a failure and the top priority. So I said, well, you know, let's come up with a, it sounds simple, right? Top 50 goals list. But it's making that transparent is, I think, what is not often used. So we go, here are the top 50 most important things for the marketing team this year, who the owners are, status updated like twice a month. Everyone can look at it whenever they want. And so if you're going to argue about is my thing more important than your thing, which is important in marketing because everyone's always a little matrixed and you need help from people. And the priority is if it's not on that, if it's on that list, it means it is more important than anything not on that list. And so I just try and scale it through these, you know, these mechanisms and a few others. Going back to the mechanisms in Amazon. Yeah, it's, uh, 
works. It's a great formula. It's a great. Yeah, formula. I mean, it's not only Amazon. You know, Henry Ford had mechanisms. He had an assembly line. Yeah. So, going back to that initial experience that you had at Ventasso, again, I know that was a painful one, but such a rich experience in terms of informing your subsequent uh, your subsequent career and, and the experiences you engaged in. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of some of the best times of my life. I learned a lot. So last question for you, if you were to look back across the arc of your career and even your life and had to boil it down to one thing, what would you say the one thing is that's made the biggest difference in your life? I think learning to be both uh, arrogant and humble at the same time. It's that to speak strongly of my convictions and not be not afraid to argue with people but at the same time, do that while you're holding in your head any of your strong ideas may be wrong. And that if your previous ideas were wrong, uh, that you should hold no, um, should not be emotionally attached to any of those previous ideas, that it's not a hit on you personally. So it's kind of like uh, I've always taken this approach of I will argue like hell about something I believe in, but. If I kind of see data that's new that I didn't think about that proves what I said was wrong, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's wrong. Let's go do a different direction. And, um, you know, I was not like that when I was 23, 24. So I, I think that's one of the things I've learned the most that uh, has been the most helpful. It's the rigorous pursuit of truth and not the idea itself that matters. Exactly. It's pursuit, yeah, yeah truth seeking and yeah. that, that ego and, who created the idea, you know, there's no accounting of how many times people were right and wrong. You know, some of the most creative people, you know, they're only hitting, you know, like baseball players, right? They, they can hit on the 30% of their ideas and be a massive success. Ariel, great conversation. Thank you again. Really enjoyed the time cool. we spent together. I really appreciate the time, Justin. Thanks a lot. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.